Well, hello everyone. Uh, welcome to our weekend online experience or online weekend experience here at Grace Church, Medina East Campus. So uh, whether you're watching online or maybe you're one of those who's in person here at our campus in one of the indoor or outdoor venues, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you. Uh, just thanks for plugging in uh, as we continue in this series uh, that we began a few weeks back, the series that we have been calling Recalibrate. And so Recalibrate is a series that in many respects, honestly, is it's kind of self-explanatory a bit, or at least I think most of us can uh, easily understand the concept of what it means to have something recalibrated or to recalibrate something. But uh, what we've been doing just kind of to help us out a little bit throughout this series is we have been returning to a definition of recalibrate that the dictionary provides to us, which I think has served in the last three or four weeks of this series as some continuity or like a helpful guide for us. And so we're going to do that here right now. And so according to the Cambridge Dictionary, this is what we've said. We've said that recalibrate means this, that to recalibrate means to make adjustments or changes to correctly reset something. It also means to change or adjust the way you do or to change or adjust the way you think about something. And so, as I said a moment ago, uh, most of us probably who are listening or watching this, uh, we probably don't really need this definition to help us out here, but hopefully, again, that it just serves to kind of get us all on the same page a little bit. You know, I think most of us, to be honest with you, uh, just intuitively understand what recalibrate means. And we kind of understand that there's some ingredients that are involved when we think about what it would mean to recalibrate something. And so I think, uh, generally speaking, I think we all know that in order to fit a definition like this, I would probably say that at least three things, it, it might be more, but at least three things kind of have to happen in sequence. And so it looks something, maybe something like this. We'll call it the recalibrate sequence to kind of first or, or fully understand what we're going for here, what it means to recalibrate. So in a recalibrate sequence, like first, what we're doing is we're acknowledging that, man, whatever we're examining that needs recalibrated was strategically and originally designed to serve a specific purpose. It was originally and carefully calibrated, that this something was originally and carefully designed to serve that specific purpose. And so, for instance, when I think about this idea or these ideas of uh, initially having something calibrated, when I think about this, I think about this guitar tuner pedal right here that I have. So this is one of the ones that's on my spaceship of a pedal board that uh, you all probably miss because we haven't been able to do sort of the full band setup at our weekend services. So as I think about this pedal, right, this tuner, right, this tuner is finely tuned, you see what I did there? Right, right. So this tuner uh, is finely tuned um, or calibrated, right, to ensure that when I pluck a string, like when I plug my guitar signal into this, that when I pluck a string on my guitar, this tuner is going to tell me how sharp or how flat I am to the standard that, can, that is contained within this tuner and the electronics and the circuitry that are inside of this. And so then what I can do, what this helps me do, is I can then adjust my signal, right, to uh, on my guitar, my strings, to match the perfect pitch that this pedal is engineered, right? It's calibrated to provide. But if something like this tuner, for instance, needs recalibrated, we're not simply saying that it's originally and artfully designed to serve a specific purpose. We're also saying something else, aren't we? That, number two here, 
that over the course of time, that this something, this, this tuner, for example, has become misaligned. In other words, it no longer quite does that which it was originally designed to do. And so something's off, right? Or something's flawed. And so again, with this pedal here, there could be a breakdown in the circuitry or the electronics or the diodes or all the things that are going on in here that I don't really understand. And what that's gonna do when it's miscalibrated, when it's misaligned, it's gonna create all kinds of problems for me as a guitar player. This tuner or something has become misaligned and it no longer functions the way that it should. Now, but he here's the really important step when you think about the sequence of recalibration or this recalibrate sequence. You see, in order to truly recalibrate, right, I cannot simply stop at the diagnosis of the problem. I can't just know what it was originally designed to do and know that something's off, right? I can't simply stop there. Recalibrating looks at what ought to be the perfect pitch of this tuner, right, that, that this tuner was designed to provide. It identifies that there's an issue in that tuning now, but then what it does is it moves to bring this thing back into alignment with its, its original purpose, that this something is brought back into alignment with its original purpose. It's recalibrated. And so, of course, uh, that original purpose in this case is to support me playing absolutely ridiculous guitar solos, isn't, isn't it? And uh, guitar solos that both melt your face off as well as warm your heart simultaneously, right? Now, of course, uh, this message today is not primarily about guitar pedals, right? Uh, maybe sometime in the future, Pastor Tony will let me or give me the opportunity to riff for about three hours on guitar pedals. But this isn't about guitar pedals, right? But hopefully you can see the point in what we're trying to get at here. You see, when we take these three kind of steps or concepts in the recalibrate sequence, and if we begin to apply these things to our lives, what we're basically saying is this, that number one, that God made us, right? That God is the one who has strategically and artfully calibrated us to relate with him. We were designed for relationship to interact with God in some powerful ways. And he strategically and artfully calibrated us for that relationship and not just for that relationship, but he also calibrated us to function in this world in specific ways. This is kind of, if you go back to the first couple chapters of Genesis, where it talks about God granting humanity the image of God. It's this idea of being reflections of the character and the heart and the goodness and the desire for order and beauty and everything to be right that God has to be reflected in and through us. Man, God made us. We're saying that he calibrated us to relate with him and to function in these amazing ways. Man, God has granted to us this privilege of reflecting him, again, much like the tuner was designed or is designed to reflect perfect pitch. But again, we were calibrated, but inasmuch as we were designed for relationship with God and to function in certain ways, we know, the Bible says, but also we, I think, know intuitively when we look outside of ourselves and our world and inside of ourselves and our thought life and process, man, we know that something is drastically off. And so the Bible has a number of names and ways of describing this offness, but the dominant one is sin. And so if nothing else, what we have to see is that sin in our lives has miscalibrated our relationship and our function, right? There is now, because of sin, a misalignment of what we were made to be in our relationship with God and in our function in the world. 
But again, as we said, we can't stop with one and two in this recalibrate sequence. The big idea of this series is found right here in point three. And we're saying, man, that God invites us into the challenge of looking at Jesus Christ because he's the means that we have to get our lives back into that alignment with our original purpose to be recalibrated. That what we're saying is Jesus extends humanity in this offer of salvation, that Jesus extends, extends the power to be reconciled to God, to come back into a right and proper relationship with God, and thus also to be fully recalibrated to our design and the function that we were intended to have. And so for the past few weeks, what we've done is we've kind of just been looking to put Jesus back at the center of our focus. And what we've done is walked through being recalibrated to our love for Jesus, spending time with him, investing in that relationship that he offers us. And also we've looked at how our lives specifically could engage in the transformation that he offers, that our lives could look more and more like Jesus by the power that he gives us. And so today what we're going to do is we're just going to continue in that journey by focusing ourselves, our hearts and minds and our attentions back on Jesus, specifically on what it means, what it might mean to be recalibrated to God's design for us as human beings. And so specifically today, we're going to look at what I believe, I firmly believe, is a really important question that's related to all of these ideas in this recalibrate sequence and what God wants to do in and through us through Jesus. And it's a question that might be asked in this way. What has God, the one who created creatively and artfully designed us for in specific ways, what has God creatively and artfully designed a fully functioning person, a fully functioning human being to do? What has God creatively and artfully designed a fully functioning person to do with their lives? Um, in other words, if I'm to be recalibrated to some original plans of God for my life, what exactly does that look like? Maybe another way we could ask this is go something like this. In light of who I am, what is it that pleases God the most? In light of who I am, what pleases God the most? And so what we're going to do is we're actually going to explore what Jesus himself has to say about, I think, these really important questions. And we're going to look at an interaction between Jesus and a lawyer in a passage in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. So at this point, if you have a Bible on you, I just want to invite you, go ahead and grab that and take that out and make your way to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Now, uh, I'm going to have it up on the screen here behind me just so that we can all make sure that we stay on the same wavelength. Or if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along that way. But again, Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. We're going to read this together, ask a couple questions, and then go back through it kind of piece by piece and unpack what Jesus might have to say in answer to that question. Man, what does God want from me? What, what am I strategically and artfully designed to do in my function in life? So Matthew 22, starting in verse 34, Matthew says, But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they all gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him, Jesus, a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, the lawyer, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus says, this is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus concludes by saying, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All right, so as we're looking at this passage, uh, there are some of you who might be uh, a little bit more familiar with the Bible who have probably heard or have read this passage before, maybe a lot for some of you. Some of you have heard this passage or read it so much that like it's, it's ad nauseum, right? In fact, for, for you, if that description kind of fits you, uh, you might already have the words great commandment floating around in your head because you not only know that those words appear here in verse 36, but you also know that that's what Bible nerds commonly call this passage. It's the passage about the great commandment. And so if that's you, you may be thinking, right, okay, this is the place where Jesus tells me that I'm supposed to love God and I'm supposed to love people. Got it. Check. Register, right? Moving on. You might be saying something akin to what you find in Hebrews chapter five, chapters five and six. Like, this is kind of milky stuff. Uh, it's time for me to go on a little bit more to the meatier stuff. I want to dig deeper. This seems kind of elementary or rudimentary. I've got this. Now, because I think this passage, honestly, is so common in the church and, and many of us who follow Jesus and who love the Bible and read it, man, we've, we've read this or we've encountered it so many times before. I think what that might mean is that some of us could be really tempted to check out a bit here today in this conversation. And by check out, like, I mean, if you're in your living room and you're watching this online, Maybe there's this like subtle temptation for you today to just like exit YouTube or close down the website and make your way into the kitchen to, to finish your pancakes and your bacon, right? Or uh, if for some of you, if you're on campus, you might be just tempted to slowly but surely migrate from your Bible app on your phone and pull up your Scrabble Go app, right, on your phone. Uh, let, let me just say too that if you're going to pull up your Scrabble Go app, that, that's fine. Uh, but just make sure you turn the thing on vibrate because that sound notification that uh, causes your heart to leap with joy because it's your turn in Scrabble, just make sure that that doesn't sell you out in front of anybody else that you're around. But, uh, but again, while it might be tempting, guys, uh, to drift away from this passage and maybe go do something else or not engage, uh, if I can, just uh, with, with as much love and, uh, and uh, compassion in my heart for you, I just want to urge you, like encourage you, if you can, for the next couple minutes, just engage with me a little bit, because I think what we're going to find here is very much related to that recalibration stuff and that sequence that we talked about a few moments ago, and specifically with that really big question that surrounds what God desires most from me as a human being who is designed to live in proper relationship with him and function in specific ways in the world. So if you can hang with me, what I want to do is I want to go back and I want to kind of unpack this story a little bit. So as we do that, what happens here is Matthew begins in verse 34. He begins by kind of telling us that a group of religious leaders who are known as the Pharisees had gathered together to test Jesus. Now, by test, what we don't mean here, what Matthew does not intend, is that simply the Pharisees were looking for Jesus to take an exam, and if he passed the test, he would be, uh, he would be eligible to enter into their club or their group. Instead, most scholars and commentators agree that this was a test 
that was intentionally crafted to kind of trap Jesus into saying things that would have contradicted certain non-negotiable and highly regarded Jewish beliefs and traditions that the Pharisees and their followers held. And so what the Pharisees do is they gather together and then they pick a representative. It says in verse 35, one of them, a lawyer, asks Jesus the question to test him. So this lawyer comes up. And uh, by the way, when you think about lawyer or when you read lawyer in this passage, this is not the same. It's not the equivalent of a modern day attorney. Uh, What you can do when you read lawyer in the Gospels, you can think of a person who is skilled in studying the Old Testament law. The law, the laws and the commandments of the Hebrew Bible. Law, lawyer. So, so this, this lawyer who is well steeped and well versed and studied in the Old Testament law and the Jewish law, this lawyer is brought forth and he asks this following question, right? In verse 36, he says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, you, you got to know this uh, from the perspective of a first century Jewish person. So if you were a first century Jewish person and you were around when this whole debate is going on and when this testing is going on, or even if you're reading this after the fact and you're a first century Jewish, per- Jewish person, this right here, this question, which is the great commandment in the law, was not an unexpected question in the least. Uh, actually, the question itself here. Uh, is as transparent to us here reading in our English Bibles as it was to them. And so we might actually reword it a bit to say something like this, that the lawyer comes up to Jesus and he says, listen, Jesus, I mean, there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament, right? And as a matter of fact, according to our traditions and our religious leaders, we've counted 613 laws to be exact. So Jesus explained to me, what is the one law? What is the one commandment or regulation that supersedes all the rest? Like, in other words, if I have a bad memory and I can't remember all 613, heck, if I'm having a bad day and I can't remember the big 10, you know, the 10 commandments, Jesus, which one is the one that, man, if I do that one, if I do that one, that one's going to make me right with God. And so Jesus responds here in verse 37. Jesus says to the lawyer, says, this is the first one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, let me just say too, again, if you're a Jewish person living in the first century and you're privy to this conversation, Jesus's first answer here would have created very little controversy between him and the Pharisees. Let me just tell you that no one, and I mean nobody, Nobody would have thought that Jesus' response here, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, was in the least bit controversial. Now, some of you, again, who are a little bit more familiar with the Bible, you might actually recognize what Jesus is doing here, uh, that Jesus is actually quoting from the Old Testament, from the Old Testament law sections in his Bible. He's quoting, and the phrase here, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, this phrase comes specifically from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 5. Deuteronomy 6, 5, which Deuteronomy 6, 5 was actually a verse that had stood and still stands as the heart of Judaism in nearly every era of history. And, and so much so that this one verse here that Jesus quotes out of Deuteronomy 6, 5 has been given uh, by Jewish people um, its own special title. 
It's been given the title, and it's called the Shema, the Shema. And so the title Shema literally comes, it's a Hebrew word. It literally comes from a Hebrew word that means listen up or hear. And listen up or hear, not just open your ear canal to the reverberations of what, of what some, of sound waves of what someone is saying, but allow your ear to be a window or an avenue into your mind so that you can truly ingest and take in and think through the wisdom of what is being communicated to you. And so we can actually see this again. If we go back to the passage that Jesus quotes in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, the command to Shema or hear or listen up, you can see here that it actually precedes the verse that Jesus winds up quoting in Matthew 22 to the lawyer. We see here that it says, hear, O Israel, that literally in Hebrew is Shema Israel. That's why it's called the Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then after that, in verse five, again, we get this very familiar, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, when Jesus quotes the Shema in Matthew 22, what he's doing is Jesus is simply affirming what, again, most Jews would have already believed and held to be like the pillar of their religious life, the, the pillar or the foundation of their devotion that they had toward God. And what they're saying in, in Shema stuff here, when they would say that that's the, the foundation of their life with God, they're saying that, man, what God desires most for those that he's in relationship with is for those people to love him with, with everything that they are and all that they have, with all that they are and everything that they have. And so what I want you to notice here is notice how in both Deuteronomy 6 and Matthew 22, the emphasis in these passages is on the word all. It's on the word all. Look at this. Verse 37 again, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then again, by repetition, as if to stress the importance of this term, with all your soul. And then you get the trifecta at the end of the Shema, with all your mind. There's obviously an importance to the repetition that's going on here. Both Deuteronomy 6, as well as Jesus' quotation, wants to point our eyes to see that the stress is on the all here. But what I want you to notice is, is that there is an all that is tied to the various aspects of the human experience that are listed here. These aspects that Jesus calls our heart, our soul, and our mind. And so when you look at this, I think that Jesus is saying, he's echoing something that would have been embedded in the original command to Shema in Deuteronomy 6. I think Jesus is saying this. It's like, listen, take everything you know about what makes you, you. Every faculty, every aspect of who you are, your heart, your soul, and your mind, every way of looking at your life, and you ought to give that fully and completely to God. You ought to give your all to God. And so this is like total devotion, that there's no portion of you that's to be withheld. There, there's no change that's supposed to be left over in the pocket of your soul before God. Jesus is saying here, present all that you've got, make it all available to love and to serve God. All of it available to love and serve God. 
And now, just to be clear, when I say love and serve God, because you notice that serve, you're like, serve doesn't appear here in this passage. What I'm trying to do is do my best to give us all a little bit of a better idea of the way Jesus intends us to understand what this all-important word love means when he quotes the Shema in this passage. You see, I think we need to be reminded of this, that in, in both the Old and New Testaments, the terms that are used for love here in the Shema and elsewhere, these words for love are not words that reflect concern for my own preferences. They don't reflect a concern for selfish ambition, or they're not about personal, self-egotistical, egomaniacal aggrandizing, right? If you think about it, uh, for us, that's a little bit difficult, because when we hear and we think about the word love in our culture today, uh, the word love is really elastic for us, isn't it? It has a huge range of meanings. So, uh, for example, in, in one breath, I can say, man, I love Chipotle. And then in the very next breath, I can say, I love my wife. Now, either that says something really amazing about Chipotle, or probably more accurately reflects the really tragic scenario my wife presently endures in her marriage to me. But, but you got to see this. I mean, love in the Shema and throughout the Bible, for that matter, love is not about personal preference. Love is not about accumulating things. Love is not about me. Love in the Shema and throughout Scripture, it communicates something very different. It communicates a resolute decision. Not a fleeting emotion, but a resolute decision. And it's the resolute decision that I am going to pledge myself in undying, unfailing commitment and devotion to another person. That I will be, that my life will be characterized by being completely devoted to the good and the flourishing of another person, even if that act costs me greatly. And so we have to remember here that biblical love is not self-focused, right? It doesn't look to take from others for personal gain or take from others so that I can increase my sense of self-worth. And, and look at this. In this context, this love is God-directed, isn't it? In other words, Jesus says in quoting the Shema, man, we are to prefer God's desires and God's will more than anything else. And often you see in Scripture, and we, some of us know from experience, that that kind of love for God, if it's a biblical kind of love that gives up my preferences so that God's desires and will can be honored and glorified, Man, that often comes at the expense of my personal comfort and my personal pleasure. But see, love, we got to remember, does not pursue gain from God. We're not looking to gain something from God. Love here, to love God with everything we've got, means that we have a willingness to give up the things that we value most in our lives for God. And so while this is, I think, really clarifying for us, the all-in nature of that kind of sacrificial love on God's behalf, well, all of that is clarifying. Uh, nothing to this point of what Jesus has said or implied has been, again, in the least bit controversial. N none of it. But it's actually with what Jesus says next that effectively takes this otherwise ordinary mundane story of agreement between Jesus and those who sought to test him 
And it effectively takes that story and it turns it on its head. So most of us have probably already noticed that the lawyer, when he asked Jesus for the great commandment, he asked Jesus to give him a single commandment. He said, teacher, what is the great commandment? And what's the mega, what's the one that rises to the top, the cream of the crop? And yet he's asked for a single commandment. And Jesus, who's ever the overachiever, right? Jesus here gives him two. He's asked for one, but Jesus gives him two. He says in verse 39, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All right, so Jesus here, much as he has just done in verse 37 when he quotes the Shema, Jesus here in verse 39 dips back into the Old Testament law. And this time he quotes a passage from the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. But here's what's curious about this that should be somewhat obvious to us, right? Uh, Just as likely it was to the lawyer, to be perfectly honest. The question we might ask is, why would Jesus do this here? Why would he include a second commandment? Like, is Jesus just really bad at math? (laughs) Or is something else going on? Guys, I think we get a rather eye-opening clue in this little phrase that appears before Jesus quotes Leviticus 19.18, this little phrase, a second is like it. A second is like it. Uh, So my guess is that uh, when you and I read these words, words like first in the previous verse and words like second here in verse 39, Uh, Our tendency is to think immediately in terms of superiority, first, best, and inferiority, or better, first, or worse, second. And honestly, I think we're kind of conditioned to this because of the ultra-competitive culture in which we live, which I think this ultra-competitive culture is most clearly demonstrated or reflected in our love for sports teams, (laughs) And specifically, uh, the rankings or the standings or the ratings of those sports teams. So take, for example, football, okay? The good old NFL. Uh, Now, every single one of us, if we're football fans, every one of us knows that the, the Buffalo Bills, okay? Buffalo Bills will be first in the AFC East this year. They're going to be first. I'm going to predict it right here and right now. Now, um, first and foremost, yes, I'm kind of sharing something about me that, uh, that you might not know. I'm a huge Bills fan, and so that's a big reason why uh, this analogy has made it into this conversation. But really quick, just to be clear, uh, what I originally wanted to do was to insult the Pittsburgh Steelers, which is kind of commonplace around here in the Medina East Campus. I wanted to insult Pittsburgh with a kind of a more region-specific reference, like to the Browns being first and the Steelers being second, but, well... Yeah, I think we know why I can't use that. So so let's go with the Bills analogy, right? So now, because again, the Bills will be first, I'm calling it here. The Bills will be first in the AFC East this year. That means that their arch rival, the New England Patriots, that defiled team, the rabies of the NFL, right? The Patriots are going to be second. And just real quick, notice how, how beautiful, the beautifully colored buffalo here is leaping over to destroy the fleeing patriot in the way that this is structured here. But here, look at this. If the Buffalo Bills are first in the AFC East, the first ranking 
is a statement, at least for us and the way we're conditioned in our competitive culture, it's first a statement of the bills of superiority. If the bills are first, it means they are better than. It means they are superior to the patriots. And likewise, the second ranking is a statement of the patriots being less than, worse, inferior. The patriots are losers. We all know that, right? But here's the deal. Because we are conditioned to think this way in our culture, kind of in a snap judgment sort of way, that sometimes in the same way that the Patriots are clearly inferior as the second team in this system, the second commandment in Matthew 22, Matthew 22 might easily be viewed in the same way. Or at the very least, the second commandment could be viewed as maybe possibly less important, maybe non-essential, or maybe we might even go as far to say that the second commandment, kind of the way that we're wired with all this, second commandment could be optional, right? So like Jesus is saying here, love God with every fiber of your being. And if you have time or if it's convenient, it might be nice if you did stuff for other people once in a while. You know, a little benevolence and altru- altruism, a little philanthropic behavior, right? But here's something that's really fascinating to me. The word here that is used for second in Matthew 22 is a Greek word. The word that lies behind it in the Greek is the Greek word deuteros. You can say it, especially if you're in your living room, you can say deuteros because nobody's going to be there to check you on it. It's this word deuteros. Now, deuteros does mean second. If you're going to look up that word in a Greek lexicon, which is kind of like a Greek dictionary, your first entry would be that the word deuteros means second. Now, interestingly, though, deuteros is also the same word that is used in our Bible to form the word that we've already seen, Deuteronomy, okay? Which you recall, Deuteronomy is the book of the Old Testament where we found the Shema, what Jesus quotes, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, right? And so the term Deuteronomy is actually a combination of this word deuteros. You can see deuteros, Deuteronomy, right? But it's a combination of deuteros and the Greek word namas, which means law. And so here, if you take these two words, deuteros and namas, and you bring these two things together, you see that Deuteronomy literally means second law. Second law. Now, why did it get that name in particular? Well, I'm really glad that you asked that question, right? You see, here, you got to get this. Just tune in if you can. The book of Deuteronomy, the book of the second law in the Bible, is all about documenting the version of the Old Testament law that was written down 40 years after God had originally given the law to the people of Israel when he rescued them from captivity in Egypt. Did you catch that? Just listen in. Deuteronomy is the second installment, the second writing that was written down 40 years after the original law had been given to the people of Israel in the book of Exodus. The the, the language might be different between the law given in Exodus and the law given in Deuteronomy, but the essence of those laws is identical. It's the same. So what this means is that deuteros, as second, does not mean inferior. You see, Deuteronomy wasn't inferior to the original law that God had given in the book of Exodus. Deuteronomy is second because it's another copy of that law 
that was written down much later. Deuteronomy is a restatement. Deuteronomy is a recap. Catch this. Deuteronomy is the same law stated in a different way for a new generation. So take these concepts back to Matthew 22. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? Far from rating the two commandments of love, as if to say one is superior and one is inferior, no, Jesus is saying that they're actually two sides of the exact same coin. Two sides of the same coin. These two commandments, love the Lord your God with everything you've got, love your neighbor as yourself, and these are two complementary ways of expressing a single idea. Jesus is saying here, man, give God everything you've got. Love him with everything you have. Serve him. Pour yourself out to him because why? Well, he loved you. He has loved you unconditionally. And he's given you everything in the person of Jesus Christ. He has moved heaven and earth. He's given his unique, one-of-a-kind son over for you so that you might be reconnected into relationship with him. So what ought you to do in response to that love? Well, make his agenda your priority. And then Jesus says another way to say that, another way to engage in love of God is to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the way that you most fully give yourself to God is by intentionally and sacrificially laying down your preferences for the good of other people around you, for the good of your neighbor, that that loving God means you begin to love him to such a degree where his heart and his desires, the things that he's concerned with most, begin to be adopted in you as that relationship is carried out. And that means that loving God means that you love, you begin to develop a love for what he loves and what God loves is people. And that you do all of that with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. You do that with everything you've got. And then Jesus concludes in verse 40. He says that all the law and the prophets, meaning all the specific and sometimes bizarre and confusing commandments that litter the Old Testament, all those 613 laws that we find there, all of those things, they hang on these two when these two are properly placed in tandem and in collaboration together. In other words, man, what God wants from you and from me is not for us to to tirelessly and meticulously follow a bunch of 613 rules and commandments. That's not what God's really about. That what God wants most of all is your complete loyalty to him, your complete devotion and your affection for him so that then God can mold you and to shape you to actively love what he loves, to re have that image of God reconstituted in you, to become a different person so you can grab a hold of the great function and purpose that God has given all of us in this world as human beings. And see, even, even while Jesus teaches us these things in Matthew 22, we have to see that Matthew 22 is situated in the context of the entire gospel of Matthew. 
And that entire Gospel of Matthew is itself devoted to reminding us that Jesus, Jesus alone has showed us how to love God faithfully and how to love people sacrificial, sacrificially. Jesus is the template. He's the example and the one that gives us the power to do that. Jesus loves God faithfully. He goes to the cross because he loves his father and wants to honor him. And at that same act of selfless devotion to the father and his plan at the cross, simultaneously was the greatest demonstration of sacrificial love for others that we as human beings might come to have life because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Guys, above everything else, this is what, Jesus is saying, this is what God has designed us to be as human beings. The reality is, this is what God wants from you. This is what God wants from me. And not only does he want this from you in this relationship, more than that, he knows that you're calibrated for this. So it's not even that he wants this from you. He wants this for you, to bring you into what you were designed for. And so I think in light of this, we might be asking, okay, love God, love neighbor. I get it. I get it. But now tell me a little bit more. What are some practical takeaways to loving God and neighbor? Maybe you're a person who has heard this story and has heard these two commandments before, and you're thinking, I've got it. I've got it locked in my head, but how do I do that in my everyday life, right? Because this love of God and love of neighbor can easily remain in this level of abstraction. How do I give that legs in my life if I'm a follower of Jesus? Because, right, it's great to know that we love God most when we love people or the people that he loves, but we might, we might just ask, man, what does that look like? So listen, I, I know there are probably a myriad, like a host of ways that God's spirit might, might get specific with you in your life through prayer and in building that relationship with him. But if I can just offer two thoughts that I hope might be helpful to you as you prayerfully consider what action steps you might take as a follower of Jesus to love God and love people in your life. And the first one might appear a little unorthodox for some of you when you read it here on the screen. The first I would just offer to you and suggest is to consider confession. Consider confession. You see, I actually do think that Jesus might be inviting some of us to take a first step to concretely love God and neighbor by simply confessing the fact that we have warped ways of thinking about the deep connection between loving God and loving people. We are all calibrated for this, but there is a miscalibration that occurs. And so maybe for some of us, what's happened is in our lives, maybe recently, or maybe this has been characteristic of our walk with Christ, maybe we've lived off of a kind of maybe consumerist, private piety, like me and Jesus version of Christianity, where the phrase love for God has been defined as I get what I want from God rather than defining it as what I might give to God and what God might do through me to express his devotion and affection for other people. So again, you might be saying, confession, really? I'll just say, yeah, yeah. 
but maybe not in the way that you think or you're conditioned to think or maybe not in the way that you've experienced confession in the past. So what I want you to do is I just want you to remember two really important things as you consider the possibility of confession as a first step. Two things you need to know and remember about confession. Number one, first, remember that we all have misaligned and miscalibrated mindsets that are not healthy. We are all plagued with sin. And so confession then isn't admitting that I'm somehow more screwed up than the person next to me or the next guy. Confession is simply an acknowledgement of what is true in that threefold movement in the recalibration sequence. It's just acknowledging that what we really need, what I really need, is the power of Jesus to overhaul and recalibrate my life. And the second thing you need to know about confession, the second is like it, is this. Remember that in confession, it's a reminder that God is so good to us, guys. Jesus is so good to us. Jesus is so good to us that he actually gives us confession as a gift. And confession is a gift. It's it's a gift that allows us to experience the transformative power of Christ in our lives by his Holy Spirit. 1 John 1.9 reminds us of this. 1 John 1, we actually start in verse 8. John says, man, if we as followers of Jesus, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. John says, if we claim that we're, we're perfect, that we're calibrated as we ought to be, we're just living a lie and we're telling ourselves that same lie every day. And he says, the truth isn't in us. Verse 9, but if we, if we confess our sins, openly acknowledging that we need Jesus' power, Jesus is faithful. He's consistent to do what he's always done. He's faithful. He's just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To cleanse us and recalibrate us from the warped ways of thinking about what love for God means and what love for others is all about. So maybe this is your first step. Maybe it just means confessing your neglect of love for God and others. And let Jesus do what he does best. Let him be faithful. Let him be just to forgive. Let him cleanse you from your unrighteous attitudes. Let him recalibrate you through the spirit that he gives. Now, for others of you, some of you may be like, yeah, okay, I I understand. I understand the confession piece, and I'm going to work through that and pray through that with God. And I understand, and I appreciate what Jesus is saying in Matthew 22. But for you, your mind might just be stuck on, you might be wondering, man, I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. I, I know that. But what's sticking with you is, well, who exactly is my neighbor? Like, like, how do I define, how, how do I identify my neighbor, that person, right? And how can I get then active toward loving and serving that person? Well, I think in response to that, that it's interesting when you go to the Gospel of Luke and the way Luke presents the same account of Jesus and the lawyer that we found in Matthew 22, the lawyer actually follows up Jesus' statement about loving God and loving people, and he asks another question. And he asked the question, who is my neighbor? So if you're asking that, that's the right question to ask. 
And what I love about Luke's presentation of this story is that Jesus responds to that question, who is my neighbor? He doesn't respond with a lecture. He doesn't respond with a finger point. He doesn't respond with another list of to-dos. But Jesus responds with a story. And the story that he responds with is the parable of the good Samaritan. Now, we're not going to have time to go through that story, but I would encourage you, whether you know the story or not, you can read that in Luke 10, 25 through 37. Luke 10, 25 through 37. I encourage you to read that this week. But as I read that recently, two things stand out to me when I encounter that story. Two things stand out. The first thing that stands out in the parable of the Good Samaritan is that the one in the story who truly loved his neighbor was acutely aware of the people that were around him. He had his eyes open to see beyond himself. He wasn't navel-gazing. He was aware of his surroundings and able to see the hurt and the pain experienced by other people. And secondly, the other takeaway from the parable of the Good Samaritan is this, is that the neighbor was a person that showed up in the middle of that guy's daily activity. Right in the middle, as this guy's walking down a path, the neighbor shows up right in front of him. He had an awareness of his surroundings, and he recognized that in the mundane activities of life, the neighbor had been there all along. And so what does this mean? Well, I think if if you're looking for the neighbor in your life, maybe you could begin by prayerfully asking yourself maybe a couple questions, questions like these. Number one, am I asking God to give me the spiritual vision the vision to look beyond myself and what's in front of my face and see the needs of those around me? Am I asking God in prayer to give me the spiritual vision to see beyond myself in the things that I do every day? So guys, what if, what if your trip to the grocery store was not an accident? What if we had the spiritual vision to see that a trip to the grocery store is not an accident? What if, what if the beleaguered cashier who just seems to be so grumpy toward me all the time, what if that cashier is in front of me on purpose? What if they're acting out of some deep pain that's existing in their life? What if they just need someone, a follower of Jesus, to buy them a candy bar or to give them encouragement or to continue to go back to the same line and encourage that person. What about a trip to the gas station, right? Is it really because you're on empty or does God have you there on purpose? Guys, what would happen if our daily activities were seen as divine appointments? I'm just saying that maybe asking these questions in prayer will allow your heart to hear from God that you are not in those places by accident. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are not in those places by accident. You are there on purpose to love God by entering into the lives and the pain and the hurt and the joys of other people in love and service to them. How about this one? Ask yourself the question, do I know the neighbors in my neighborhood? I even put neighborhood in quotes, right? Do I know the neighbors, the names of the neighbors, the people in the houses around me in my community? 
But do I also know the names and the hopes and the dreams and the fears? Have I built relationship with the neighborhood of my workplace? How about my workplace? I mean, in the cubicles around me who are in close proximity, in the offices around me, the people that I see and interact with every day. I mean, these are people that God has placed around me as I live out my daily experiences. And maybe in prayer, asking the question, do I know my neighbors? And relying on the power, the transformative power of Jesus to know that my love for God will motivate me to show up and get to know relationally and build relational trust with the people that are already around me. And then finally, there's this one. Maybe ask yourself the question, do I have neighbors in my church community? Do I have neighbors in my church community? This might be a little different or unorthodox for some of you because you're like, wait, what, in my church, other followers of Jesus? I find it very interesting that throughout the Bible, especially if you were to look at Galatians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul who writes Galatians says this, that we are to, as followers of Jesus, do good to everybody. In other words, he's kind of echoing what Jesus says as these two linchpin commandments here in Matthew 22. He says, do good to all, love all. But then he follows that up by saying, and first we are to do good. We are to love those who are in the household of faith. Those would be other followers of Jesus in your life. And so maybe that's a question that you ask God and go to God with in prayer. God, do I have other followers of Jesus that God, you are calling me to love and to serve? And so maybe this is that opportunity. If you don't have other followers of Jesus in your life to love and serve, maybe this is that chance to respond to the invitation that we give you all the time here at the Medina East Campus. And you got to get in biblical community. That if you're not in a life group, you got to get in a life group. Why? Because neighbors are not just those next door and in your office. The neighbors that we are called to love are those in the household of faith as well. Guys, the bottom line is this. When we look at Jesus and what he says in Matthew 22 about the great commandment, loving God and loving people, this is the way that God is bringing us into recalibrating our lives to our relationship with him and bestowing upon us again, man, the great purpose that God, the function that God has designed us to be in the world and desires for us to engage in. So my encouragement to you is in asking these questions, will we respond to the call of Jesus to love God in this way with all that we have and to see that that is fulfilled when we love who God loves in active, real, and tangible ways. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you um, for the way that you loved us. Father, we acknowledge that uh, there is no way we could even respond to these two commandments to love you and love others unless you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to be the example of what your design for us as humanity is to be, but also for giving us a way out of the enslavement to sin and the enslavement to self that we all experience from the time of our birth. 
Jesus, thank you that you are the the picture, perfect portrait of what loving God and loving others looks like, that you gave your life, you laid it down for both of those audiences sacrificially. But in so doing, Jesus, thank you for the invitation to come into the life that you offer. Thank you for the power that you give us to transform and to become different people, that it's only because of you and you at work in our lives that we are even able to increasingly love the Father, love God, and to genuinely move to love people around us as ourselves. Jesus, we're just asking that you work with us by your Holy Spirit. Just quicken to our hearts and our minds the people that are around us. Give us that spiritual vision to see the hurt in other people and also give us the spiritual motivation and the power to enter into the pain of others, to invest in them in whatever way we can, to love them like you would love them in the hope that they would come to know and more deeply appreciate just how much you care for them. Thank you, Father, for doing all of this, for making a way, for paving it and making it all possible. We praise you, Jesus, for working in such a way, for giving us the freedom. We're asking for your Holy Spirit to move forward to mobilize us to love. And we pray this in your name. Amen.